love singing that song with the church together. What a beautiful name it is, name of Jesus. Amen to that. I could just continue to sing that. Like, let's just, let's do it till 12 o'clock tonight. Today, we continue our series um, in Love Does. And we're going to address an issue that maybe you've been wrestling with. And maybe you've been hearing these great stories about how people are doing love and having birthday parties for prostitutes and you're, you're reading about stories from Bob Goff, and, and you're realizing that those are great things, yet there's something missing. Like, you're not in the center of that. You're not standing on the front lines of that. And, and maybe you're realizing that you long to and want to, and maybe there's something that's happening between you and God that's, that's caused something in you to keep you from loving God. And the reality is this, is you can't love if you lose your first love. It's impossible to. And we've been talking about that over these last five weeks. You heard Pastor John, you heard Pastor Mike, you heard myself sharing the messages that when you get close to Jesus, you become like Jesus and you love like Jesus. And we want to win our world and the culture. The only way we win our culture back from the enemy is we love them. And if we don't love one another, then how can we say the love of God is in us? John covers that over and over in the Gospels. In fact, John said this. Just listen to this in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20. Just let these truths just permeate through your heart and mind for a second. 1 John 4, 20 says this. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. First John chapter 4 says, whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. And then he says this, for whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, cannot, 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 emphasis, cannot love God whom they have seen. You love God as much as you love the person you love the least, is what that's saying. As if that isn't hard enough, John says, if you hate your brother or sister and you claim to love God, you're a liar. And then John goes on to say this, and later in the book, or earlier in the book, in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15, he says this, anyone, anyone, grace community, anyone, anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, murderer murderer. John is saying this. If you hate your brother or sister, you're a liar. If you, you claim to love God and you hate your brother and sister, then you are a liar and a murderer. And you may say, Pastor Jim, how in the world is that true? Another way to say it in the New Testament is this. You are a man slayer. So he's saying this. If you hate your brother and sister, If you have a secret malice, if you have a secret grudge, if you have a jealous, bitter, resentful spirit towards anyone, everything you're doing is the same as a murderer except the outward constraints and restraints of it. If you say, I love you, God, and you're holding a grudge, and the spirit of resentment and hatred towards any brother, you and I are murderers. How you feeling now? A strong. John never beats around the bush. 
and the spirit is this. How can we ever love someone else unless we love God? And if we truly love God, then we will love another. You can't have one without the other. In my home growing up, it was very common for my mom and my stepfather to play music. We had a Curtis Mathis stereo TV. Anybody remember Curtis Mathis? Like that was the thing of the day. And in this Curtis Mathis stereo TV was an LP player, 33s and 78s and 45s. And it was very common, and I'd say very common, there'd be many nights of the week that my mom and my stepfather would dance in the front room, and we siblings, children, would dance too. It never helped me, by the way, just want to let you know. But we would dance, and we would listen to music. My mom loves music. She loves worship music, and she loves all kinds of music. But there was one song that came to mind this week that we used to sing all the time. And I'll mention his name. His name is Frank Sinatra. And some of you millennials, like, who in the world is Frank Sinatra? Like, you don't even know who's Frank Sinatra. Anybody know Frank Sinatra? But there was a song that my mom used to play, and we would sing as kids. And it went something like this. Love and marriage, love and marriage. They go together like a horse and carriage. This I tell you, brother, you can't have one without the other. Love and marriage, love and marriage. They go together like a horse and carriage. Dad was told by mother, you can't have one without the other. So you help me. Love and marriage, love and marriage. They go together like a horse and carriage. This I tell you, brother, you can't have one without the... There you go, Frank Sinatra. Now, the truth in that song is this. You can't have one without the other. If we claim to love God, then we must love others. So if we don't love God, we can't love others. You can't have one without the other. Now, there's a book in the New Testament written by Paul, he was writing to a church called the Colossian church or a place called Colossae. And when he's writing this letter to them, he is telling them he is proud of the way that they contend for the faith and the way they love one another. And as he's writing this letter to them, he also mentions this other group of people who are doing the very same thing. This letter is intended for the Colossian church, but Paul in his writing says, and while I'm reading this and writing this to you, tell them that I'm proud of the way they love one another. Grab your Bibles and turn to to Colossians chapter 2. And if you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Our ushers will put one in your hand. But turn to Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 5. All day you'll be singing, love and marriage, love and marriage. 
Stand with me as we read Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is Paul writing to the Colossian believers, and he says this in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Would you read it out loud with me? Ready, read. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom all are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may be deceive you by fine-signing arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. You may have a seat. As you can see from this text, Paul is writing to the church, the Colossian believers, but as he's writing to them, look again in chapter 2, just go back to your text, look what it says. I, verse 1, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at where? What's the word? Laodicea. In the midst of writing this letter, Paul says, hey, there's another group of believers. They're meeting just 10 miles away, and and I've spoken to them, and I'm excited. I've heard reports about them that they're contending for the faith, and they're disciplined, and they're loving Jesus the way we want them to love Jesus. And he says, while, while this is taking place, make sure you tell them that, that they need to read this letter too. In fact, look at Colossians chapter 4. Look at, turn over to chapter 4 and look at verse 14. He says this as he gets to the end of this letter. He says, our dear friend Luke, the doctor who wrote the book of Acts and wrote Luke, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at where? What's it say? Laodicea into Nympha, and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, Colossae, see that it's also read in the church of what? The Laodiceans. And that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. So Paul makes great mention of this church called Laodicea. Now it's the distance basically from Goshen to New Paris. So when he would come and report, he would go to both places, and yet as he's writing this letter and would be inscripturated forever, if we could hit the pause button on this church right now, they're doing really well. They're loving God and loving others. So much that Paul writes a letter to another group of believers, and while he's writing it, they're in the back of their mind because you know what? They're doing a good job too. And he even mentions another church nearby that's doing a good job. So, they were supposed to take this letter and read it to them also. These believers are loved by Paul. And he wants them to know that he is proud of them. He wants them to know that they they haven't left their first love. You see, the reality is that you can't love if you lose your first love. And so, if we can hit the pause button in history, in Christian history right now, in church history... There's a moment in time when the believers, the church, which is the people, love God very much. So much that they're disciplined, they're standing firm, and they're making a difference. And God sees them, and Paul recognizes them. And since God is love, they must be close to him. Because you can't have one without 
the other. And when you first fall in love, think about a relationship. When you first fall in love, you want to spend a lot of time with that person because every part of you wants to spend time and they can do no wrong. And so you have that, we would call that honeymoon period where you overlook things because you just have this infatuation kind of love. You have this love that you've never felt before. So you have a tendency to overlook. But if we're not careful, if we don't realize that love is more in the feeling that it's a choice that we get to the end of these feelings that we no longer have, and we say, I don't love them. But the reality is this. When you fall in love with God, and when you meet him, and he changes your life, he never does anything wrong again. We can never say that he doesn't do that for me anymore. Like, I don't have this anymore. He continues to do those things. And so this church is madly in love with Jesus. And people who are in love do everything they can to show the other person that they love him. And this church was doing a great job of that. We would even use the term, they seem to be obsessed with Jesus. So much that Paul writes about them. When you see someone that's in love who's been with Jesus, they stand out. There's something different about them. Like like the, the, the aroma of Christ oozes from them and you walk away, you're challenged, you're convicted, you're affirmed. Like you just want to get near them because Christ permeates from their life. And Peter, after he healed the man and John... And the religious rulers wanted to throw them out of the city because they were proclaiming Christ. They even said, those guys have been with Jesus. And when you're with Jesus, you're bold and courageous and contagious. You see, there's a difference between being around Jesus and being with Jesus. There's a difference between being around Christians and being with Jesus. There's a difference between being around Christian events and being with Jesus. There's a difference about being around the church and being with Jesus. Once you're with him, it should change you in the way you live. You can't love others if you've lost your first love. And so as we walk through the series and we're saying love does, maybe the reason that we don't feel the natural inclination and the motivation to love and sacrifice and give up is because we're not spending time with God and God is love. And when you spend time with him and you sit in his presence, you soon become like him. You cannot have one without the other. You can't love unless you love God. So what do we need to do to remind us? And this week I was thinking, sometimes we just need to remind ourselves of of what we've been saved from, what we've been saved to. We need to go back to that morning point where we first fell in love. You need to go back and say, wow, when I fell in love with Jesus, I was this person and now I'm this person. And because of that, not only do I have an eternity with him, but my life on earth is different. And so this week I was thinking, what would my life be like if Jesus wasn't in it? What would it be like If he didn't, from the foundation of the world, elect me, if he didn't predestine me, if he didn't choose me, if he didn't didn't mark out a time in my life where someone would come to me and I would receive this free gift of salvation, what would I be and who would I be and who would you be without Christ? And then I was thinking again, I've been processing this thought and trying to, because it it, it means a lot to me, and, and, and I was thinking, what would that was that like in the beginning? Imagine before human beings were created, and the earth as we understand it being created, as we see in Genesis, 
Imagine what that was like because God has always been, will always be. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He has no beginning. He has no end. So he has always been. And we know that there was a point in time when, when we understand the earth was created. Human beings were breathed into existence. Animals were created. We know that there was a time, as our minds understand, that there wasn't that. That it was just God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I've often thought, what was the conversation like? I can't even wrap my mind around it because I'm a finite person trying to think like an infinite person. And God thinks past, present, and future all in one train of thought. Like, I just blew my mind. I don't even understand that. But imagine that moment, as we understand, where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three in one together in their third masculine plural, as they're getting together and they're having this conversation. Hey, Let's create an earth that has people in it. Imagine that conversation between the three and one. Holy Spirit says something, the Son says something, the Father says something. And collectively and unanimously, they decided, let's, let's, let's create an earth, let's make human beings, let's give them free will. Like, who made that decision? Think if you were the ruler of, a, of the world and you had a chance to create people. Why would we ever create people that would sin against us and have the propensity to want to run away from us? God did. So they're having that conversation, just just short and sweet, think about it. And so they get down the conversation and think, wow, there's going to be sin. The only way that they'll be able to get back to us is if a perfect sacrifice takes place. Can you imagine that conversation for the very first time when I was processing that, what that must have been like when someone of the three in one or collectively they said together, we need a sacrifice. I choose Jesus. Okay. Imagine that thought for the first time ever in the hallways of heaven, the angels heard death and a crucifixion. They had to run to the dictionary. They've never heard it before. What is that? Someone died. What's death? We don't know what death is. All I'm experiencing is life. What's going on? And Jesus himself chose and was willing to come from heaven to earth and reduce himself to an embryo in a woman's womb, a virgin womb called Mary. And he chose to live on planet earth and take the gospel. And he knew at the end of his ministry at 30 plus years that he would die on a cross. What kind of ruler and king would ever do that? No one. The best our rulers and kings would do to show that they love people, they might give them a tax break. If it didn't hurt their taxes. They might give you a free turkey at Thanksgiving. They might have food, and they they might set up a Medicare and a Medicaid and insurance program that says, I love you, but they would dare not give their own life. What kind of king, what kind, imagine a president or CEO or someone of your company saying, I'm going to die for you because I'm going to show you that love. There is not a king alive that would ever do such a thing, but King Jesus did it for us. Think about that for a second. Maybe you walked in here today and didn't feel very loved. Jesus loved you so much that he reduced himself. Think about this. He reduced himself from the king of kings, the Lord of lords, setting the throne in heaven in a perfect place, decided to come to earth and, and walk and become the incarnate man and walk on planet earth. And he was tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. And that he knew at the end of this journey that he would have to die or allow himself to be murdered on a cross. And God, the father, allowed his son and collectively together, they decided that Jesus would come, the king of kings and Lord of lords. He reduced himself. Think about this for a second. This is what Jesus reduced himself to. He reduced himself to the size 
of an embryo. The king of kings, lord of lords, perfect in every way, reduced himself to a grain of salt for you and me because he loves us. No king does that but Jesus. So when I processed that again this week and I was thinking through that, then why in the world would I want to find love anywhere else other than in the presence in the community of Jesus Christ alone? Yet, this church, the Laodicean church, they experienced that. They understood that. They spent time with him and they understood what they've been saved from and saved to and they wanted to be with him and they, their faith was marked out by Paul. Yet there will come a time in their lives where they lose that love and once you've lost that first love, you can't love others. That drift is real. And it happens so subtly. Now turn back to Revelation chapter 3. Let's take a look at the same church who loves Jesus with all of their heart. In fact, they get, they get mentioned in, in the book of Colossians. And then in Revelation chapter 3, look what it says in Revelation chapter 3. Now, by the way, let me give you a little timeline. 25 years later, just 25 years later, the same church is mentioned. And these were Jesus' words written by Paul, or written by John. It says this in verse 14 of chapter 3. To the angel of the church at Laodicea, that's the church we just read about in Colossians. These are the words of the amen. The faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your what? What's it say? Deeds. That you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were, were either one or the other. So because you are what? What's the word? Lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, let me give you, help you understand. Sometimes we think hot and cold. We think that hot is better than cold. And we think that cold means you're far away from God. No, cold is a refreshing drink. Think about it. Just, just think about it this way. It was in the cisterns that was sent into the city underground. And when they were able to drink a cold drink on a hot day, it refreshed them. It's the same for us. If you took a, a cold drink of water that was in ice, it refreshes you. So that's good. And a hot bath and a hot shower is refreshing to you. And so Jesus is saying, you, you, you are, he says, look again. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich and have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But do you not realize that you are a wretch, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put in your eyes so you can see. And then he says this, those whom I love, I what? What's he say? Rebuke and what? Discipline. So be earnest and what? What's he saying to this church? Do what? Repent. And then he says this. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give you the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on this throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so Jesus is speaking. This church that was once close to Jesus, on fire, loving God and loving others, he says, now you are lukewarm. And I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. 
your actions and your faith is dead. Church, that's only 25 years. And Jesus says, listen to me. You need to be earnest and repent of this. Because you're neither cold nor hot, you are lukewarm. You see, you cannot love others unless you love God first. But we begin to pursue other things instead of Jesus. And it happens so subtly, and my hope is this, that it's not happening in your life. We, we strategize, we plan, we prioritize, we think we're headed in a good direction, yet the enemy is crafty, and he pulls us away, and we buy into his systems, and before we know it, we've walked away from our first love, and we will never win our culture to Jesus unless we love him. And you can't have love for others unless it begins with Jesus. Let me ask you a question. John Piper proposed this question. It's an incredible question, and it's a very convicting question. And I want you to answer this question. He said this. The critical question for our generation, and for every generation, is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you've ever had on earth, and all the food you've ever liked, and all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted. No human conflict or any natural disasters. Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? Oh. Would you be satisfied? Like you've had everything you wanted. No conflict. Every pleasure you've ever wanted. Every adventure you ever wanted to be on, no conflict, no hardship, the most beautiful things you've ever seen, you'll ever go to, if you could have that in heaven, would you be satisfied if Jesus wasn't there with you? Have you found satisfaction, Piper, saying, in pursuing those other things, and you have left and lost your first love? What scares me is when people are lukewarm and they don't know it. I believe this with all my heart. It would be a tragedy to come to the end of our lives and end up succeeding at something that really didn't matter. Let me ask you a very, very personal question. Be very honest about this. As you look over your past year, Where has the majority of your planning, your strategizing, your energy, your passion, your money, your talents, your gifts been spent? Is the majority of your efforts and energy and time spent on something that you have prioritized over Jesus? Listen to me, the enemy is so subtle. When we begin to place all these things, these talents, these gifts, these pursuits, these interests above Jesus, we will soon leave and we will soon walk away from our first love and we will become just like the church at Laodicea. You see, you and I become most like that which you focus your attention on. Like, where was the focus of your attention last night? Where was it before you came to the worship service this morning? 
Look at your calendar. What are things that you've placed on your calendar? What are the things that give you the most joy? Is it Jesus Christ or is it something that you want to accomplish, achieve, finish, run, pick up, become? What things have you placed in your life that you find more satisfaction in than you do just sitting with Jesus Christ? The Laodiceans, there was a moment where they were known for their faith. They were known for the love. They were known for their discipline. And just 25 years later, Jesus says, I don't want nothing to do with you. In a love relationship, if only one gives all and the other doesn't, what begins to happen in that relationship? It gets lukewarm. In fact, look at verse 20 in chapter 3 of of Revelation. Look what Jesus said here. He said, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Let me try to explain that. I am married to Ann Catherine Bortner Brown. And by the way, absolute best woman on planet earth. Like, I got the best, so I know you feel that way about your wives. I feel that way about my wife. Like, when God brought us together, he gave me the gem, the best. He gave me the gold. He gave me the ruby. He gave me. And we have a marriage relationship. She's the bride. I'm the groom. But imagine in the context of of the picture here, Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. Imagine, for the sake of, 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 of illustration, Imagine if every day I came home to 20081 County Road 146, New Paris, Indiana, and as I'm driving in my own driveway to my own house, I pull in our garage, and and before I can enter, I got to knock at the door. Imagine me getting out of my Jeep Commander, walking up to the garage door, and I'm knocking. Because the only way I can get in, if Ann wants me to come home, now imagine for a second. That's ludicrous, isn't it? And so imagine what I'd be thinking. I'm coming home. Boy, I hope she lets me in today. Imagine as I'm coming and I'm knocking and I'm thinking, boy, I better make the tone of my voice. A good one. Baby? Honey? Let me in. I mean, there's something crazy, ludicrous, dumb about that, isn't it? And I want to say, but baby, don't you remember 1988 in August when we said I do and you became my bride and I'm the groom? Hey, we're married. Remember? Listen, I already lived there. And now you're telling me every day when I come home, I don't know if I can come in unless you let me in. Imagine every day if you went to your house, you're the husband and, you're, and your wife is the bride, and you're not certain or not whether you're going to get into your own home. And instead of having free access to our own home and to the love of our lives, you knock at the door and you hope for the best. See, the reality is this. You shouldn't have to knock on the door of your bride because it's already your home and she has already given you the keys to the door of her heart already. Imagine every day if the only way you could get into your home is if your bride gave you permission. 
Pa. <laughs> There's something wrong with that picture. And Jesus is saying, listen, I already live there. And you're not giving me access to commune and spend time with you. And I have to knock on the door of the heart that I already have ownership towards. That's ludicrous. And Jesus is saying, listen, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with the person and they with me. The permission was already given the day I said I do. Something is wrong with us when Jesus doesn't have an open invitation to our lives. That's why he says, be earnest and repent. Because what we used to have, we no longer have. And he no longer has refrigerator rights. Listen to me to his own house. So how does that happen? How did that happen to this church? I mean, they were, they, they were, they were standing firm in the faith. They were, they, people knew them, and they were disciplined, and because they lost their first love. And they began prioritizing all these other things, strategizing, spending money, planning, 10-year plan, 20-year plan, 50-year plan, working hard, building, climbing, achieving, becoming everything but falling more in love with Jesus Christ. You can't love the world if you don't love Jesus. Francis Chan had some really good stuff to say about this in his book, Crazy Love. Our Bibles tell us this, that we should examine ourselves. Our Bibles tell us this, that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So what do we do? We need to examine ourselves. I'm going to give you a self-examination. This is for you. This isn't for you to go home and say, honey, you need some work to your wife or your husband. This is for you to examine yourselves and ask yourselves, have I drifted? Would Jesus spit me out of his mouth this morning? Am I lukewarm? Here are some examples. Lukewarm people attend church regularly because it's what is expected of them, what they believe good Christians do, so they go. They go because it makes their parents happy. They go because it makes their wife happy. They go out of duty. They show up at the first, second, and third service. They have their Sunday planned out. That's what Christians do. We go to church. We go out to eat. We watch football. That's just what we do on Sundays. I'm off, so I'll just go to church. Lukewarm people give money to charity and to the church as long as it doesn't infringe on their own standard of living. If they have a little extra and it's easy and safe, they give that, instead of giving their first fruits, the Bible says, give your first to the Lord, not what's left in your pocket when the offering plate comes. Lukewarm people don't have a plan of giving. They just give what's left over instead of first fruits. Jesus said, I will spit you out of my mouth. Lukewarm people tend to choose what is popular over what is right when there's a conflict between the two. They desire to fit in both at church and outside the church. 
They care more about what people think of their actions than what God thinks of their hearts and lives. And so they might say things like this. I want to remain cool with my friends and fit in. I want her to like me or him to like me, so I won't talk about Jesus too much. They compromise on their faith so that they can fit into this world and fit in, they think, to heaven to come. Lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sin. They want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. They don't genuinely hate sin and aren't truly sorry for it. They're merely sorry because God is going to punish them. Bummer. That means if I do this and sin, this will happen to me. Lukewarm people don't really believe that this new life Jesus offers is better than the old sinful one. Boy, I used to like it when I was able to do this and and do this with my friends and do that with my friends. Seems like the old life was better. Now it just seems like I have to make these decisions. Lukewarm people gauge their morality or goodness by comparing themselves to the secular world and they are nowhere as bad as the person down the street. At least I didn't murder someone. Maybe you did if you hated your brother and sister. At least I tell the truth. Maybe you're a liar if you hate your brother and sister. At least I didn't commit adultery. Well, maybe you did if you committed lust. Lukewarm people compare themselves to someone down the street and say, at least I come home. At least we have this. At least we aren't as bad as the Joneses beside it. And you think that's okay. That's what lukewarm people do. Lukewarm people say they love Jesus and he is indeed part of their lives, but only a part. They give him a section of their time, of their money, of their thoughts, but he isn't allowed to control their lives. Let me just say something. Some of you have Jesus as your savior, but you don't have him as the Lord of your life. I want you to think about that. You say, yeah, Jesus saved me. He's my savior. But there's a difference between him being a savior and him being your Lord. A Lord is someone who leads you, who who gives you insight, who you submit to. It's not just Jesus saving me and getting me into heaven. When we follow Christ, he becomes the Lord of our lives. And not only is he Savior, but he's Lord. Lukewarm people just have him as a Savior, not as a Lord. Lukewarm people think about life on earth much more than eternity in heaven. What can I do tomorrow? What can I do? I hope I have time for this. What's my vacation coming? I got to run this race. I got to get my kids here. Hey, we got to go out on this date. I got to build this at home. I got to make sure I do this with the team. I got to make that. We got to take care of all this. Got all these stuff I need to check off. I got to do this by the time I'm 40, 50, 60, instead of thinking our citizenship is in heaven and one day the king is coming and I'm going to be raptured out of here and I get to spend eternity and I better make sure I take people with me. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next world. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Lukewarm people do whatever is necessary to keep themselves from feeling too guilty. 
And so they do things like this. They ask, how far can I go before it's a sin? Instead of, how can I keep myself as far away from that sin as possible? Lukewarm people say it this way. They ask, how much do I have to give instead of, how much can I give to Jesus? Or they ask, how much time should I spend praying and reading the Bible instead of, I wish I didn't have to go to work this morning. I am soaking and communing in the presence of the living king who left heaven and went to the cross and saved my soul, and the world needs to know about him. Lukewarm people are continually concerned with playing it safe. They are slaves to the God of control. Let me just ask you a question. What is the most recent risk that you've done for Jesus? Not a risk you've taken an investment with your money to bump yourself up. What's the biggest thing that you've just done? What's the most recent risk that you would say, I stepped out in faith for Jesus and I'm willing, even if it doesn't work out, I am going to put myself. What is the most recent risk thing that you've done for Jesus Christ? You see, lukewarm people don't have those in their lives. Lukewarm people probably drink and swear less than the average person, but besides that, they really aren't very different from the typical unbeliever. And Jesus is saying, you're neither hot nor cold. And because you're lukewarm, you disgust me, and I will spit you out of my mouth. You see, we will never win this culture to Jesus Christ if we don't love God. You can't have one without the other. Jesus asks for everything, but we are continue, constantly trying to find ways to give him the minimum so we can hold on to the things of this world. Maybe, just maybe, listen to me. This is you. This is between you and God. Maybe you don't love Jesus. Maybe you've lost that first love. Maybe you love this pursuit more. Maybe, maybe you love your kids more. Maybe, maybe you love your husband more. Maybe you love your wife more. Maybe you love this, this race more. Maybe you love this achievement more. Maybe you, maybe you love this goal or dream more. Listen to me. If you lost your first love, then you can't love others. Look again what Jesus said to the church at Laodicea. His counsel wasn't to try harder, but rather, what did he say? Let me in. Let me in. Let me in. And let me be the Lord and leader of your life. Maybe you're here today. Jesus is just another thing on your list of pursuits. And he's just tacked onto a list of many things. Instead of being your everything. Maybe there was a time like the church at Laodicea when Jesus was your first love. But now, he's just one among many. Jesus said, be earnest, 
and repent. Maybe you have drifted ever so slightly in the last few years, and maybe there was a time three, four, five, six, maybe 25 years ago when you were madly in love with Jesus, and yet if you are totally honest today, you would say, I have lost my first love for Jesus. Hear me, Grace. Don't make him knock anymore. He already lives there. It's his home. You accepted that invitation when you trusted in him. Don't make Jesus drive into your garage and have to knock on the door when he already was given the keys when you said, I do. You see, if we want to see the world one to Jesus Christ, it begins with us. You can't have one without the other. The only way the world will be one to Jesus is if we love God and love others. I'm going to ask you to stand, but please don't leave. And I'm going to ask people on the top to be quiet. Just stand with me, would you please, in the link in the main. Ask the worship teams to come forward. Now listen to me. This is just you. This isn't the person standing beside you. This is you. This is between you and God. I want you to answer this and ask the Holy Spirit to look at your heart. Have you drifted? Are there things in your life that you love more than Jesus? If you were able to have a heaven with pleasures and adventures and pursuits and things that you love and enjoy and Christ wasn't there, would that be enough? Are you on this path that has left your first love? Do you still have that fire and passion and hunger for Christ like you did? 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago, Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. Be earnest and repent because your lukewarm life disgusts me. I'm going to ask you to do something. As we sing this last song that has prone to wonder, prone to leave the God I love, I'm going to ask you to do something. Now listen. Pride is a piece of lukewarm people. I'm going to ask you to let God, the Holy Spirit, examine your heart. And I want you to be totally honest. Are there areas where Jesus is my Savior, but he's not the Lord of this area? And I repent. So as we sing this song, don't sing it, by the way. Don't sing these words unless you and God are good. If not, I'm just going to ask you to come forward and repent and be earnest about it 
and say, Lord, I don't want you to have to come knocking at my door. I want all of you, Jesus. So as we sing, I'm going to ask you to come to the front in the link, in the main, and listen to the Spirit's whispers. And get back to your first love. In Jesus' name, amen. Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Here I raise my hands to praise thee, hither by thy help I've come. And I hope by thy good pleasure Safely to arrive at home Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God He to rescue me from danger Interposed his Precious blood. I just, just want to interject. Just, I want you to answer this question. Listen to me. It's between you and God. Are you at a place where you were when you first came to Christ? I mean, has every area of your life been surrendered to him? Are you able to say today, Lord, there's no areas that you have to come knocking to? Please, don't sing this song and raise your hand in worship unless you're there. And praise God that you are. Pride keeps you from making that step. One of the best ways to surrender is to come in repentance. And repentance is coming and surrendering. Can we turn that light off, please? Coming and surrendering. So I ask you, during this time, if you're not right, standing in your seat's not going to make you right. There's this action called repentance, and it causes you to walk through pride. This is a safe place that you'll ever find. Is Jesus your everything? He is or he isn't? You answer that question.